welcome to the panel on RNZ National. This afternoon we have Max Harris and Julia Hartley-Moore uh, this afternoon. Uh, and just uh, some traffic here, just some uh, late breaking news here. Breakdown is blocking the left westbound lane uh, after St Luke's Road. This is in Auckland, this is State Highway 16, Northwestern Motorway. So do pass with care and expect delays. So uh, that's a 4pm update, a breakdown is blocking the left westbound lane after St Luke's Road. Do pass with care and expect delays. We'll have a bit of response too regarding uh, Julia's. I've been thinking a lot of response regarding age. Uh, I recently had a 70th birthday. I celebrated over several weeks with a gathering at my home being pampered. Being 70 is loads of fun. Anyway, got to start with this. Great news, big news. It's time. The Women's Rugby World Cup final is upon us. Tomorrow night, the Black Ferns will play England, Eden Park, with the winner crowned World Champions. The Black Ferns have only ever lost two of the 37 games they've played at Rugby World Cups. They've never lost a final. All in front of a sold-out Eden Park tomorrow, 7.30pm. And, of course, the backdrop to this, it's the World Cup itself. And our next guest has been researching what Rugby World Cups mean to New Zealanders and some fascinating insights. With us is Tony Bruce, Professor of Sociology of Sport and Sports Media at the University of Auckland, also a former rugby player. Professor Bruce, kia ora. Kia ora. And first to tomorrow's game, the Black Ferns. I mean, they've been through some trying times in the past 18 months, but what a team that'll run onto the field tomorrow. That self-belief, that grit, I guess, it's been amazing to watch over the past few weeks, hasn't it? Oh, it's been exciting. I've been lucky enough to go to almost all their games and just to see the way that they play, the joy, the pride, the exciting style, all the kinds of things that are coming through in the in the survey that I run and all the people that I've been talking to through the whole event. Yes, and I want to talk about the people that you've been talking to and the, and the survey because it's quite interesting. But just looking at the, 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 the game in England, they don't have any weak links across the field. On a 30-match win streak hosting the next World Cup, I can just imagine the amount of pressure the Black Ferns will be under. I mean, that cannot be uh, understa- under, understated. No, it's, it's immense pressure. And what I thought was interesting is that most people I've spoken to want the Black Ferns to win, but maybe about half of them think that England's probably got the edge. So lots of discussions I've been listening in on and talking to people about is, is really if the Black Ferns can keep the ball out wide and if they can keep the ball out away from the forwards of England, they, they feel like they've got a chance. Yeah. So you have been doing this very interesting research, uh, looking into what this means for Kiwis. Uh, uh, um, And one is, I'll mention one, better behaved crowds. Tell us about that. What were some other fan observations? Well, the, the the crowd one's really interesting because... I've had some people who um, recently say that it's the first time they've ever been to a sports event where they felt safe. Mm. So that sense that, you know, you don't see people who are drunk, you don't see people who are abusive, there's just this really strong Fano vibe there. And you see that partly because the tickets are cheap and people can bring their whole family in the ways that maybe you can't do to some of the more expensive events. So that's, that's been a really, really strong one. The thing that's really standing out to me is the number of older men who followed rugby their whole lives 
who are completely and utterly on board with the Black Ferns <laughs> because they feel like the way they play is like the All Blacks used to play in the pre-professional era. Right. You know, and they've got that long view. So they, they've been right through the, the amateur era, through into the professional era. And, and there's this kind of sense of nostalgia that's coming through that this is what rugby really should be like. And the women are embodying that in the way that they play the game. It's very interesting you say this, Tony, because anecdotally, and it's only anecdotal, um, months ago we would have had uh, some texts, maybe from senior some or people in their 60s and guys who didn't get the game, who don't watch it because they would have thought it's just not for them or dreadful. Um, now it's a completely different thing. People are excited. And I noticed one man in your research in the 60s quoting the style is more open then the men and the skill sets are exciting. Yeah, well, one of the things, I mean, I've, I've just been going through some of the data. I've, I've only got 275 responses, so I do need to say this is a non-representative yeah. sample. But what people are saying is they like the speed, the openness, the running game, the skill levels. They're rating the Black Friends tactics. They love the ball handling. And they especially like things that they play a cleaner game than the men. They play the game, not the rules or the ref. They love that there's fewer stoppages. And then it's, it's how they play their spirit of the game. So their love for the game, the way they clearly are playing with joy and excitement um, and the way that they respect and care for each other and also the opposition. So one person told me one thing they really liked was, I guess, one of the opponents in one of the games was down on the ground and the, one of the black friends went over to help them up. So it's that yeah. that sense that everyone's in it together. You're playing as hard as you can, but you're playing for the good of the game. Julia, what's your uh, take on all of this? Pretty, pretty impressive, pretty progressive. Oh, look, I think it's brilliant. And, and for someone who was never into rugby when it was guys playing, um, I just take my hat off to these girls. I mean, so that some of them, you know, are mothers. They are working full time. They're training. But I think what they've shown us is that that rugby doesn't have to be so macho. It's that they've they've actually given it some. They've just made it so it's more exciting to to watch, and it's kind of respectful. It's really interesting because I'm not, I've never been a rugby person. No, no, and and we've you, we've talked about that. Eh? you just sort of turn off. Yeah. And we've talked about rugby, but not but not now. And I think Tony, that's one thing you've mentioned that the fact that many players are mothers uh, is another layer of their appeal mentioned in the research. Yeah, definitely, that's come through. I think particularly from women who are mothers who really appreciate the fact that that their that their motherhood is just part of who they are. Right. So their players and their mothers, you know, and their friends and their daughters, and as someone wrote, yep. their aunties, and, and and that they, they're sort of like whole human beings. Um, Here's one, yeah. Tony. I've just John has just texted me. Hi, I'm one of those older men, 57. I've just realised how classic women's rugby is. It's a better game. Same goes for our wonderful women cricketers. They really are good. All right, Max. Yes, yeah, is really. Uh, really interesting research, uh, Professor Bruce. It chimes with kind of reactions I've heard from people. Um, yeah, I just wondered whether you could could say a bit more about, um, you know, the different kinds of role models that have been presented and, and what that's meant to people, because I thought that was a really interesting point um, in the research. Yeah, I think that people 
are at least the people who are filling in the survey and some of the people I'm talking to, they really feel like the All Blacks these days are too serious. You know, they they never say anything real in the interviews. I think there's this kind of sense that that we don't get to see who they really are as people and we feel much more removed mm. from them. Whereas mm. the, the black friends themselves, you feel like, almost feel like you know them because they're, they're honest, they're open, they're happy, they support each other. There's something about the way that they behave that makes people feel like they're being pulled into it, that they're part of what's going on. And I think that's that difference between the, the distance people feel to the All Blacks now and the way that they, they feel this closeness to the Black Trends is something that's really standing out. And, um, Tony, what a difference a decade makes. In an earlier piece, you've mentioned this. You mentioned that women's rugby a decade ago, invisible. Absolutely. I, th- I wrote about going to a 2013 rugby match between the two top teams in the world who interestingly, were England and the Black Ferns at the time. And the, the Black Ferns-England game wasn't even on the ticket. And there was hardly anyone there. There was no advertising. Nobody Gosh. knew about it. And, you know, it, just the contrast. And that was only, that was nine years ago. Just the contrast of what happened in the last decade is, it's actually astounding and very, very exciting. Exciting stuff. You're going to be there tomorrow, Tony? Absolutely. I bought my tickets on the first day, I think. <laughs> <laughs> hey, get on. Yeah, this is so interesting, this research. Kia ora. I appreciate your time. That's yeah, Professor no uh, Tony Bruce, uh, also a former rugby player, who um, played for the uh, American uh, US uh, rugby team there. 17 past four, the panel. We have Max Harris and Julia Hartley-Moore with me today. How many times have you chucked a voucher in a drawer the day after Christmas only to forget it exists until years later when it long expired? Clearly many of you, because apparently this costs spenders $10 million every year in unredeemed gift card cash. National MP Melissa Lee had her Fair Trading Amendment Bill pulled from the ballot yesterday, which means it will soon be debated in the House. Essentially... The bill proposes that gift cards should have a minimum expiry date of three years. Similar regulations are already in place in Canada, US, Australia, where there's a three-year minimum. It's a time we did it here. To discuss, we have Retail NZ Manager for Public Affairs and Advice, Amy Hines. Amy, kia ora. Hi, Wallace. How are you? I'm very well. And what do you know? In my wallet, I decided to che- check. Um, in my wallet, what do I have? A $100 voucher for rod and gun, expired 2019, never got round to using it. <laughs> and I'm really bummed. Keep yeah, going. Ways you can use it, though. You could have used it online. You could have used it in store. And I'm sure if you ring up the store, they would be accommodating for you as well. Also. Well, do you reckon I haven't tried it? But I just I, I spent half an hour this afternoon being really bummed out because I thought, well, that's a hundred dollars gone. What a waste. Um, is this a big problem? Look, we're not entirely sure that there's a massive problem here. What we see is most people use their um, gift cards really quickly. This does seem to be regulation for the sake of regulation. Um, in our viewpoint, um, you can shop online, you can do it in person. And a lot of those small, medium retailers, if you have a conversation with them and say, oh, I'm sorry, I've just missed out or anything. I'm not sure if your many years will count. Um, but they're incredibly accommodating in this circumstance. Uh, uh, um, Amy, it's $10 million a year. 
that can't be redeemed. That's $10 million that's going to waste. That seems yeah, pretty significant to me. $10 million of extra accounting revenue that the National Party is expecting small businesses to keep on their accounting books as revenue. I'm not sure the fact that this is a problem for a sake of problem. This is going to impact New Zealand businesses because the, the legislation as proposed excludes the likes of Prezi cards or commercial cards, which are a really, really popular gifts. They're the ones that actually are more likely to lapse. Um, but they're excluded from the legislation currently. Yes, but, um, you know, when you have Australia doing it, when you, you know, Canada, I don't think they have an expiry date. But so why can't, what? Regulation for the sake of regulation. Our sector tells us that the vast majority of cards that they've got are used really, really quickly. But if we're going to regulate the way that these cards are used, I think we need to think about the types of cards. Do people Are people gifting those commercial cards, which is those Prezi cards and the likes, that are excluded from the legislation? Or is it the fact that we're, we're happy to keep smaller retail businesses who are doing it pretty tough to have some extra accounting revenue sitting on their, their books when actually there's multiple ways to shop with them and use, use, the, um, use the gift cards? Okay, fair enough. Um, uh, okay, Max, what do you, what do you make of what uh, Amy says there that actually um, not needed and this is going to be an extra cost on small businesses? Well, I I, kind of wonder whether um, we'd expect businesses to kind of build in the cost like when when the vouchers are issued. And I was going to ask the question that that Wallace asked, which is, um, I mean, what's the the public policy reason behind allowing expiry dates at all? The the reason why we allow expiry dates is for the fact that you've got that accounting revenue on books. So you have a smaller run businesses are going to have to keep that revenue on the book for a longer period of time. And so they're going to have to continue to account for your um, prezi card or your voucher in that sense on their overall revenue I, I, over a three-year period. I just, I just, I'm, not, I'm failing to understand it though. It's $100 that belongs to me. It was being paid for. That's my money, not the, <laughs> not the business's money. That, that, that rod and gun money is mine. Why should it have any expiry date? Well, look, I think the thing here is it's a good idea to use them quickly. You have multiple yeah. ways to which you can shop here, okay? I think the issue also here is about if this legislation does progress, it needs to be a level playing field. I'm not sure that New Zealand businesses should be at onus in here when international commercial cards are not in this sense. I know a lot of people who give, give those gifts or those Prezi cards. Mm-hmm. Those, for example, that you can top up and reuse. They would not be included in this proposed legislation. Okay. Julia, what do you reckon? Is a question. Okay, come on, Amy. What do you reckon, uh, Julia? Basically, um, I didn't get round to using my card. My fault? No, Wallace. Because look, I think you. I. I. The whole expiry thing. He, having said that, I, I don't ever get um, gift cards because Louis Vuitton doesn't do gift cards. Oh, for um, God's sake! But <laughs> I'm honestly. Kidding. I'm kidding, Wallace. Um, but the thing is, look, I have had a gift card. I think it was for farmers, and I thought, bugger me, I only just got the damn thing, and then I it's expired. So, you know, and you kind of, I kind of knew it was going to expire, but life gets in the way, and then you think, oh, that gift card, and it's gone. So I think they should either have a longer time or no expiry date at all. Okay. But if someone's going to give you one, it like you say, it's your dough. You know, it's your <laughs> gifted to you. Hey, Amy, very nice to have you on the program. Thanks very much for that. Thanks, Wallace. Yeah, that is uh, the Retail NZ Manager for Public Affairs uh, and advice, Amy Hines. Doesn't sound like Retail NZ are particularly into uh, longer expiry dates. But uh, 
I just can't get past that, that Max, that, you know, I just, you do feel a little bit shortchanged, don't you? But having said that, I had a year and I never got round to it. I should have diarised it, right? I should have put an end date in my diary. You'd be pretty organised if you were you were diarising every uh, gift card you got. I uh, I think I'm in the same boat. Well, twenty four past for the panel are in Z National. Oh yes, um, bit of response uh, on that. Uh, Julia's onto it, but why should a lay-by just dissolve to nothing? It's no sense. Many of you might know the famous poles that have stuck out of the waves at Sinclair Beach, Dunedin like that single tree in Lake Wanaka is something of a photographic landmark, immortalised in black and white images, paintings, Instagram. And so the new Dunedin mayor, Jules Radich, wants them back. Even a petition of over 4,500 people say they want them reinstated. What happened to them? Well, these groins meant to halt sand erosion they washed away over time. Dunedin City Council, it's been big on their books. They've been debating this. Scientists, however, they do cast doubt over use of poles. With us is Dr. Wayne Stevenson, who is a coastal geomorphologist in the School of Geography at Otago University. Dr. Stevenson, welcome. Uh, kia ora, Wallace. Thank you for having me on the show. Pleasure. I mean, look, these are such landmarks. Uh, I can recall living in Dunedin, going down there in the mid-90s and being framed by them in a wonderful black and white photo. They've become something of a landmark and a local debate right now, right? That's right, yes. I, I can understand people uh, value the aesthetic value of the poles, but uh, we, we have to be careful not to confuse the poles with the proposal to build new groins. Uh, which are quite a different uh, intrusion onto the beach. Yes. So uh, not cheap, 150 k for installing, that's the basic install, then 30 to 60 k for annual maintenance. My question to you, uh, Dr. Stevenson, is this. Do groins work? Well, sometimes, but probably not in this case, mm. no. Can you explain that a bit more for us? Why, sure, why, sure. Wouldn't, they, why wouldn't they work... Uh, in Sinclair's Beach. I mean, honestly, they've been there for 120 years. Yeah, but they didn't really achieve very much while they were there, and then they eventually degraded to leave us with the poles that people kind of like to take photos of. The, the, the basic story is that beaches uh, erode during storms and sediments transported offshore uh, into sandbars and things, and then under calm conditions, those sandbars move back up onto the beach and rebuild the beach. So that sediment transport's onshore and offshore in the case of St Kilda and St Clair. You build groins on beaches when the sand transport is alongshore. And St Kilda right. and St Clair doesn't have a, a, a beach dominated by a longshore transport. It's dominated by onshore and offshore. And because these structures are perpendicular to the beach, they have no impact on that onshore offshore transport of sand. But even when you do build them on a beach that has longshore transport, you trap sand on one side of the groin, but you get erosion on the other side. So even if you build them on the right kind of beach, you still have problems with them causing erosion on the other side of, of, the, of the groin. Oh, okay, so next to useless. Uh, Max, uh, Max, have you been to Needham? Is it, is, it, is it like the Leaning Tower of Pisa? You know, the Pisa, the Pisa's not straight right, so um, fundamentally the council should say, hey, that tower's not straight, we need to fix it. Other people might say, hang on, it's attracting people. 
Yeah, I can see I can see the argument. I guess my question would be, you know, if we're listening to the science, if, if um, these weren't very effective, is, is there something else the council could be doing that, that might also have aesthetic value and protect mm. against erosion? Yeah, I, 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 good question, good Matt. Point. I, I think what the council could do is leave the beach alone. I, I would argue the most <laughs> aesthetically valuable thing we can have is a beach with sand and waves and dunes and birds not uh, not polluted or interrupted by building effectively a fence across the beach. Oh, hang on. That, That's that, getting that, political that now. Stop, that stops people from walking along and enjoying the vista. That's not a that's not a, that's that's not pollution. That's a, that's a photographic landmark that people have been um, photographing. It's like Dunedin Stonehenge, Wayne. Ah, well, I guess I beauty's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it, Wallace? I, I prefer to take photos of beaches that are not polluted by man-made structures. Whoa, we're going to get a bit of response from that, Julia. Polluted by man-made structures. What do you think of this? Well, having seen the polls yes. uh, or poll. Um, look, I think when you look at the cost of having to put them up and then having to care for them every year, unless it's going to do a good job, uh, let's be fair. I mean, you can't go up into the Tower of Pisa. You can only just look at it. I didn't know that. So it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, no, you can't. Uh, tried. Didn't work. Um, so, but I think if you, you need to, if, it, if it's a problem with erosion, then they have to do something, right? Otherwise, then just leave it alone. But But what's the point of spending all that money for very little effect. All right. So, Wayne, it sounds like our, our panellists are, are on your side there. Nonetheless, look, it is an issue that, I mean, it's the mayor's new pet project, and there have been 4,500 people, because I think people have grown up with it, haven't they? they? They think of Sinclair, they think of surfing, and they think of these groins, uh, Dunedin Stonehenge. Um, but I, I guess on a, on a bigger issue, um, erosion and beach erosion, it's a major issue in Aotearoa, isn't it? Of course it is, and, and of course we only expect it to get worse with, right. uh, obviously, with sea level rise and climate change. But, but again, I, I, I'd like to make the point: we we have to be clear about what kind of erosion we're talking about mm. here. And in the case of Sinclair, we're, we're generally dealing with erosion that was caused by the the construction of the original seawall. In response to that, sand geotextile sand tubes or sand sausages were put in place. Another built structure. That's caused more erosion, and now the proposal was to build a third kind of structure to deal oh. with the erosion caused by the previous structure that was built to deal with the erosion caused by the structure before that. But so, you know, structure even after structure. Julia? Julia? Even, something, even something called a sand sausage sounds terrible, plus it looks terrible. 100%. It it does, and if you look at the ones we yeah. have down here at the moment, they're not in good good condition because they've been damaged by waves, and and now they need to be repaired. So this is the problem when you build structures and static uh. structures in a dynamic environment, they suffer damage, and you have to repair them and replace them. And and Julie is right; the cost of building these groins is not small, uh, and you are committing yourself to having to pay for their repair and maintenance into the future. So there's a there's an intergenerational equity issue here. You know, generations people will be paying for these if we want to maintain these kinds of structures. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the sand sausage either. My, my, my um, music, my tech producer, wonderful guy, Brad, he's a big surfer. He knows this guy. He's shouting in my ear every 10 seconds. He goes, the swell comes from Antarctica, Wallace. It's a high wave energy beach, isn't it? That's exactly right, yes. Yeah. And, and like I said, you, know, you put a static structure in a dynamic environment and you're asking for trouble.
Good on you, Dr. Stevenson. Thank you very much. Uh, Wayne you. is a coastal geomorphologist. Uh, he knows all about his sand sausages and groins and uh, beaches. So uh, the consensus here is uh, forget about it. Just forget about it. I hate to say it, but um, those groins aren't going to work at the wonderful, wonderful Sinclair Beach in Dunedin. You're on the panel, RNZ National. Max Harris, Julia Hartley-Moore with me.